0: Welcome to the History of California podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. We have two episodes for you this week. The first one is today's episode, which is the history of the Civil War in California. This will be a five-part series that we'll be doing over the next couple months. I hope you enjoy it and learn a lot about something that's not really covered well in the historiography, which is California's role in the Civil War. The other episode this week is an interview with Craig Walsh, who's the son of Bill Walsh, the famous 49ers football coach who won a series of Super Bowls during the 1980s and had a major influence on the sport. We'll be discussing that and the book that he co-wrote with his father, The Score Takes Care of Itself. I hope you enjoy both today's episode and my interview with Mr. Craig Walsh. Let's get on to today's episode. We're beginning a multi-episode series today about the Civil War in California. In many ways, we've been laying the groundwork for this series in the series that I did on politics in the 1850s. We looked at the political dynamics in California in that series and how California was both a microcosm of the conflict in the eastern half of the United States and the ways in which California resembled a border state with significant conflict between the pro- and anti-slavery contingents in the political and social spheres of the state. In this series, we will look at different aspects of the Civil War in California. We pick up today with one of the most significant precipitating events that led to the Civil War in the United States, the election of Abraham Lincoln. 1860, as some listeners may be aware, was one of the most contentious elections in the history of our country. Naturally, Lincoln's election further widened the sectional chasm that was growing between the northern and southern states. The election, in addition to deepening the splinter, solidified the schism within the Democratic Party between the northern Democrats who supported Douglas and the southern Democrats who supported Breckinridge, with the former supporting popular sovereignty and the latter supporting active federal protection of slaveholders' rights. Secession was immediately on the table for the southern states as it was believed by them that Lincoln intended to end slavery, even though he had said almost the complete opposite in all of his speeches and every capacity publicly. As southern states prepared for the coming fight, there was much uncertainty over California's status. There was reason to believe that California might support the secession plan, As we discussed in our politics episode, the shiv-wing of the Democratic Party in California held most of the keys to power, as well as public offices. At the same time, there was a growing Republican movement in the state, and the immigration numbers indicated that a vast majority of the new arrivals were coming from northern states. The governor at the time of Lincoln's election was John Downey, who was a Democrat and rose to power with the support of the shiv-wing of the party ended up supporting the more northern wing, however, of the Democratic Party and Stephen Douglas. Accordingly, after the news that Fort Sumter had been attacked, Downey took swift action, raising five regiments of infantry and one of cavalry to first secure Los Angeles, which was growing increasingly secessionist, and then to fight against secession across the Union. Another major event that dictated California's early direction in the war was was the decisions made by the then commander of the Pacific Division of the US military, General Sidney Johnston. A career soldier and a veteran of the Mexican-American War, Johnston was both a loyal soldier but also a southern-born secessionist sympathizer. He was appointed to run the Pacific Division of the military during the end of Buchanan's tenure as president amidst some potentially treasonous maneuvering going on with the military including a move by the outgoing civilian secretary of war moving weapons and arms to the south. The northern suspicions about Johnston's appointment then were understandable given the climate. However, they were somewhat unfounded because Johnston himself was hoping for a peaceful resolution of the conflict between the north and the south. But we also shouldn't pretend that he did not have more realistic expectations for what was likely to happen. Lincoln, though, was not going to wait to find out what Johnston was going to do, and sent his replacement to California immediately. Johnston sent his resignation to Washington just as the same time that his replacement, Edwin Sumner, a New Englander, arrived in California. Johnston, after being relieved, went to Los Angeles, a bed of secessionism, to stay with family and contemplate his options. His Southern principles would ultimately guide him to joining with a militia group based out of Los Angeles called the Los Angeles Mounted Rifles. The Mounted Rifles were one of the most famous Confederate militia slash military groups operating out of the state. They were formed in April 1861 in the Los Angeles area and were made primarily of Southern transplants to California, but they also did include some Californios. After the outbreak of the Civil War, the group set out to Texas to connect with the other Confederate contingents of the military, but mostly joined up as part of the 2nd Texas Cavalry. Johnston, however, was too important to be absorbed into a seemingly random cavalry unit and was given command of soldiers. He ultimately was killed in the Battle of Shiloh. His legacy is twofold. First, he is eulogized by Southerners and Confederates as a man of Southern principles who did the right thing by coming home to defend his homeland. And the other aspect is the code of conduct while he was serving with the Union of Forces, not using his power to draw California into the conflict. The war might've had a whole different later if he had used his power to influence the direction of soldiers in the West. Like all characters that we look at historically, they're complicated and nuanced our tendency to make them one-sided is often misguided. And there's a lot more that is just left up to chance and circumstance, specifically in this case. Back to California. Like many border states during this conflict, the political establishment had a kind of wait-and-see approach, while it was uncertain what would happen with the impending conflict. While Shiv Democrats in California certainly held many of the important positions in the state, Republicans and Northern Democrats would ultimately outnumber them if they combined forces. William Gwynne, who we met on a previous episode, saw the writing on the wall and knew that his time was coming to a close in a position of power in California. He immediately started the process of planning his next act. He would spend the war years in his home state of Mississippi where his plantation would ultimately burn down which would drive him to Europe and beyond. While Gwyn escaped to other places, the rest of the Shiv Democrats in California were working on ways to maintain their power, even while the growing sentiment was pointed in the other direction. Across the state, pro-union meetings were being organized and speaking for the pro-union cause was the famous Thomas Starr King. If you missed the interview with Dr. Glenna Matthews, I would highly encourage you to give it a listen to get even more context on King and his legacy. Born in New England, the son of a cobbler turned minister, King was destined to follow his father into the pulpit. By 22, King was already serving two congregations and was a leading voice in politics and religion. In addition to preaching, King also gave Lyceum lectures where he spoke on cultural and philosophical topics. In 1860, King went west to serve as the leader of the First Unitarian Congregation in San Francisco. King arrived in California in the midst of a political vacuum, at least within the Republican Party. Stanford was the most famous Republican in the state, but he was hardly the one to use rhetoric to lead and organize a political movement during wartime, particularly when he could barely be trusted to give a speech. With his reputation preceding him, King was immediately inundated with requests to speak across the state, from urban centers like San Francisco to mining communities in the Sierra Nevadas. While most of his receptions were positive, he did face opposition from some Californians who immigrated west from the south, with an occasional Bowie knife wheeled in his direction. Polarization was growing worse, and King tried to step in the middle of that with an ultimately positive vision of the United States, with many suggesting that he could persuade even the most ardent secessionists to reconsider their point of view. Like any good public speaker, King often used stories and anecdotes to deliver his points. His most famous speech was about Daniel Webster. Most of us know Webster when we've had to look up words like gentanacular or impignorate, Webster became a kind of avatar, though, for King to reflect on the importance and promise of union. As he tells us, Webster emerged from a bucolic background, moving through meritocracy that rewarded hard work and dedication to rise to winning a Senate seat after a successful career as a lawyer. His lecture on Webster ends with a stirring soliloquy, partially his and partially Webster's, as he critiques the idea of nullification based on an actual debate that Webster engaged in. In case you don't remember from your high school US history class, nullification refers to a state's authority to invalidate or refuse to enforce a federal law within the jurisdiction of its state bounds. Undergirding this proposition is the idea of states' rights, which reserves the ultimate and final power with states. The initial nullification crisis took place during the years 1832 to 1833, but really lasted until the war broke out, with periods of peace and strife mixed in throughout. King, in contrast, believed that the federal government should be the supreme authority in the land, and he based this off his understanding of the United States as a nation, both connected and unified. King's ideas would not only permeate California, but the nation as a whole and have a significant cultural impact. In our next episode, we will continue our story by moving to talk about how California was fully absorbed into the Union cause. But before we wrap up today, I would like to say a few words about the sidelining of California in the historiography of the Civil War. In many ways, California's seeming insignificance is validated, given that most of the major events took place in the eastern theater of the Civil War. However, one thing that is often overlooked in history is when a pitfall is avoided, when something that could have major negative impacts is sidestepped. If California had entered the war on the side of the Confederacy, that would have caused major ripple effects throughout the United States both military consequences but also economic consequences. In many ways, the gold from the rush helped the North to finance the war, and if you are all familiar with the major factors that led to Northern victory, economic superiority was high on that list. Therefore, I would argue that California's decision to side with the North in the Civil War ultimately had a major impact more than any single general or battle outcome. And California remains incredibly important to understanding how the Civil War played out. We'll see you next time.